and welcome to Off Track, the motorcycle racing podcast. I'm your host, Dave Neal, and today we're going to be joined by Frankie Carcetti, MotoGP World Championship winning crew chief for Joanne Mir and Suzuki, as well as BSB Championship winnings with Neil Hodgson and GSE Racing, Greg Levere and Leon Camier. Frankie's won multiple races in World Superbike and most recently helped steer Fabio Di Antonio to his maiden MotoGP victory. And in today's episode, we chat about all of the above achievements, plus a look ahead to 2024 as six-time MotoGP champion Mark Marquez joins Frankie at Grassini Racing. Before that, a small favour to ask before we get going. If you enjoy today's show, then please recommend it to a friend. We're delighted to have gained a plethora of new listeners over the last year, and that's something which helps us bring you the best content we can. Every additional listener who finds us will enable us to take the show to new heights in 2024. Thank you. Now let's get into it. This is Frankie Carcedi. Frankie, welcome to the show, mate. How are you? Good. Thank you very much. That's, thanks for joining us, mate. We're up at Laceby Manor. We've kicked Roger Burnett out of his office again, gratefully, um, which allows us to sit with this great view and uh, just relax looking at the golf course. I think you'd rather be out there playing, wouldn't you, than uh, sitting here chatting to me. Just go see out the corner of your eye. Yeah, I'm just eyeing it up. <laughs> we'll have to get something up, get something done up here, I think, with the uh, with the guests that we have and have a, a day out. I think it would be fantastic. But, mate, welcome to the show. Thank you for sparing your time for joining us. I know you're, you're heading off to the Far East tomorrow, so it's all a little bit... <laughs> Short notice, but thank you for coming up, mate. It's uh, hugely appreciated. We'll start off. How did you get started in this business? How do you end up becoming a MotoGP crew chief? What's your path? Um, I'd say conventional, but not really. Um, as you do in this country, GCSEs, A-levels. Um, I went to Loughborough University, which is a university with mainly for sport and engineering. Um, fortunately, I, uh, with a bit of push, I managed to get, get away with a, uh, a degree from Loughborough. Um, and I, at that time I was, uh, applying to go into Formula One. I'd had some feedback and everything. And then quite randomly, um, Colin Wright who's probably one of the most successful BSB managers of all time. Um, his wife worked in a Halifax bank and, um, yeah, I was, Opened in an account and uh, just while we were waiting for it to open, she was asking me what I was doing. I was explaining, you know, I was into motorsport, looking to get into Formula One. And she told me who her husband was. And before you know it, I got a call from Colin that night. And it was like, right, why don't you come to Donington tomorrow? And within 24 hours, I was at Donington track. And um, I think Troy Bayliss had just finished his season. So it was Neil Hodgson and... Um, now Mackenzie, and um, I'm going to be honest, no idea who anyone was because I was always into cars from a, from a young age, and um, I loved it that much. Um, I had the that test went into another test, and then that went into the first BSB year, and I sort of never looked back at Formula One, and that was it. Went straight into bikes. Who did you work with that first year? Did you work with Neil or Niall? I was sat uh, in the middle. Okay. So I was uh, an electronic engineer. Um, it was the, I'd say the first, but one of the first where yeah. the electronics were and data acquisition on, on the Ducati bikes. And um, there was 
a good friend of mine who I saw the other day, Giacomo, um, sort of trained me up that day. And uh, I think they had someone in line and then there were some difficulties. Colin said, why don't you do this for a year? And um, yeah, I loved it. And here, what's this, 23 years later? And then here, yeah, here we are, 23 years later. Do you follow then into World Superbikes when you were at GSE for a while with Colin? Yeah, I mean, you know, you need a bit of luck and everything on the way. I mean, I jumped straight into the best team in BHP with the best riders, one up and coming, one on the back of being an X500 GP rider. Um they won the British Championship first year. They did two wild cards, maybe three wild cards, and they won the they won it, days. Yeah. Um, and winning Neil won well. at Donington, Neil won at Brands Hatch, and I was like, oh, this is all right. This is <laughs> um and um yeah, then um I think a lot of teams always say we're gonna move up and everything. Um they did the same, but they did move up straight to World Super like two thousand and one. So I'd only done the one year in BSB. Uh, and straight into World Superbikes. Um, and yeah, Neil, well, I think I'm sure he won quite a few races actually, even in his first year. Um, some pole positions and everything. It was, yeah, it was an incredible experience. What are your favourite memories from those first seasons in sort of BSB and then World Superbike with Colin? God, I don't know which stories I can say on that. I'll. Uh, there was definitely one in uh, Kyle Army <laughs> when we went on a safari, but that's uh, I'll leave Neil Hodgson to explain that one. <laughs> We've got Hodgie coming on in the next three oh, or four you, weeks. So yeah, just, just, just ask him about that one. <laughs> um, I think as a young kid, um, it's not only the love of the sport, but to go to all these amazing places that you never even dream of when you're a kid, you might, if you're lucky, go to one or two at most. But... Um, you know, you're going to South Africa, you're going to Australia. I mean, now you talk about it when you go to Australia and it's like, you know, I've been 30 times to the same place, to the same island. But actually, especially that first year when you go, it's uh, an incredible experience because you, as well as the racing, you're taking up the place, the different cultures, everything. So it's for, you know, a young kid to come out of university, it was an incredible opportunity. Especially, experience. especially so soon. There's normally, you, I say the rule of thumb is kind of maybe two or three years in BSB, cutting your teeth, learning the sport, learning the people. But that rapid ride, you, you, but then you wouldn't know any different either. So there's there's two sides to it. Yeah, like I said, I think with everything you do, you always need a bit of luck. Um, you know, as they say, I picked the right lottery ticket straight away and... Um, with the riders, I mean, that's the other thing. You're only as good as the riders and the better the riders, the more you learn. The more you learn, the more you can pass on. So it's like a feeder chain. So to have that head start straight away, um, it gives you a lot of experience and a lot of, oomph, I don't know what the word is. Momentum. Momentum, yeah. Yeah, gives you the momentum within the sport because it is, it's, it's it's a, a steep pyramid, not just for riders, but for staff as well. No, absolutely. It's, um, There's only so many crew chief positions available within each team. Yes, 
No, I always or, say or that. Data you know, engineer to, the... to then crew chief. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm quite lucky because I only I was an electronic data engineer only until 2004, and then from 2004, so 19 years, always as a crew chief, barring one for Nikki. Um, but um, I've always maintained a lot on the electronic side because it's the area that has grown over the years and probably the most fundamental. So fortunately, I started when it first started, but I've always tried to keep on top of it because, like I remember a year in the past, one year where you sort of just concentrate on something else and you forget and then you're like, wow, okay, that's changed, that's changed. So you've got to be on top of it. It must be the well. It, I, I would. I don't think I'm speaking out of turn. But it, it is still the fastest moving area in terms of development of a motorcycle, because chassis, from um, from an Olin's perspective, from a Brembo perspective, they all progress, but not quite as quick as electronics. I would suggest. Yeah, I think um, until fairly recently, for sure. Um, every year, it's completely. You know, there's big upgrades um, and a lot of changes. Um, and like I said, it's not just, <coughs> it's also understanding the strategies because the strategies are where they change. So it's understanding the technically what's changed um, with the strategies themselves, what sensors, because there's always new sensors. Um, you know, it's like a tyre. Once it was just, one tire pressure, then there's a tire pressure, temperature, humidity, internal, external. It's everything just blows up. So it, I'd almost say now it's not controlling the bike, but it's almost the heart of the bike. You know? Yes. Because if you haven't got the right electronics, it doesn't matter what you do and how you build an engine, it's not going to work. Um, so everything. Goes you can have all your spring rates in the line. You can have everything you need, your compression, your rebound, everything can be there. But if that side doesn't work. Yeah, and that's where it, it should. Well, that's where it gets tricky because you have, I mean, it's like back in the day, you could see a suspension sensor and a uh, fork and go, well, that's too soft. That's too hard. Well, with how the electronics are now and with the engine brake and everything, it's quite possible it shows that it's not soft or it's too hard, but actually it's the opposite because of how the electronics are working. So unless you have a really good picture of what's going on, you, you've got to be very careful because it's very easy to make mistakes as well. How do you translate that then with with a rider as as the electronics develop? We'll, we'll, we'll talk about this now before we, then we'll get back to, to your career and the riders that you work with. How have you had to develop your um, your communication skills with riders over the years because the electronics have changed, or do you kind of keep it you know keep it simple as as often as you can? Um, for sure, the more you know, the more can go wrong because the more you can play with and yeah, you can you can soon lose your way quite easily. Um, I think the biggest aspect I've always tried to take is um, wherever I've been, whatever rider, whatever team, whatever bike, I'll always try and, I, I get told this at home, but I analyse too much, but 
always like to learn something from the rider, from how they ride, because anything I learn, I work with another rider and it gives you information to pass on to the next one. Um, same with staff, crew chiefs on the other side. Um, it's never been a case of beating them or being the better. Or I always look and go, right, what is the one thing that they do better than me? Because I want to do that as well. So every year I'm always trying to learn. Obviously, the more with age, it gets harder. <laughs> you, know, well, you know, I can speak quite a few languages, but... Christ, I've tried now, and it's—I uh, don't—it must be the age thing, but it gets harder and harder. Uh, I think when you're young, you just pick everything up like more that. of a sponge, the, yeah. the sponge of youth. Yeah, exactly. When I when I watched the, um, I was doing a little bit of research before we before we sat down uh, over the last couple of weeks, and I watched the MotoGP podcast that you did with Fran and with Matt um, first on the brakes, uh, last on the brakes, whichever one it was. I can't remember which way around. No, I, yeah, it's one of our car. Well, Matt's new company is first on the throttle, so I guess it might be last on the brakes. Um, and one thing that you said that that stuck with me was something that we could all do is how much you've retained from the people that you've worked with, and use that going forward, taking sort of the best bits of everybody as much as you can, and encompassing that in what you do to now become Grassini crew chief, world champion crew chief with Joanne Mia. Yeah, I think everybody has their own style. So you, you never forget that. But there are certain aspects of how they ride um, and they all have their own different way. But sometimes there's something that you've never seen before and you look at it and go, well, that that works. That's quite good. Um, and it's just information you can pass on. So it's not just being a crew chief and going, right, well, I'll find you the best set up bike put some tyres and fuel and go. Um, I would say, especially in the last few years, that you can actually pass information on to riders. Um, in fact, this year is one of my first quite different uh, years, well, the one that's coming up now, because I've always tended to have riders um, that have just sort of started off or very new. So uh, it's like when Joanne Mir came to Suzuki, it was his first year, so it was always like, you, you, there's a lot you can do to explain uh, and explain how other riders have done it and how to ride a bigger bike. Almost the same with DJ because um, he'd done one year. Uh, I struggled a little bit, but something quite similar. Um, so it wasn't just setting the bike. It was also explaining how to ride the bike. And then, you know, go back as far as when Eugene Laverty first jumped on a superbike or Leon Camier. Um, yeah, it's... So this next year is a little bit different. We'll come to that later on because that, that's going to be a fascinating part of, of, of what we talk about. But when, you, when you're sat as a crew chief, and I've spoken to, to, to Spanner about this and spoke a little bit electronics with Tim C, who I know you know very well. Um, he actually put us in touch. So thank you, Tim. The Australian or... He's, he is Australian, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> the Kiwi Scott. <laughs> the Kiwi Scott. Um, he was on the show early December with Mike Norton. So we did a, a chat with them down at Alton Park, and that was fascinating. That was so well received by the viewers and the listeners. I sit there and so kind of glaze over because I have no mechanical or electronic, as you'll know from the chat as we go through. I have no knowledge of that. So it's new to me as well. It's learning for me. But when you when you actually sit down and and Tim was explaining this. 
there are points where you can look at the data that comes back and you know whether a rider has it or, or I wouldn't like to say doesn't have it, but isn't quite in the same ballpark with the, the throttle traces, with how they are on the bike and the things that you can see through data. It, it blows my mind. Yeah, I mean, one of the most, <laughs> it's a little bit sad for some people, but one of the most exciting things is when you actually look at data for the first time on a rider that's completely different. Because you have absolutely, you might have these perceptions, but you have no idea. Um, and it's, you know, you get a bit of a buzz when you see something. Oh, God, never seen that. That's new. Or, But like you said, you, whether it's their throttle trace, whether it's their, how they brake, how they use the front to rear brake, um, even things like uh, change of directions. I mean, I had one, I've seen data from one rider that used to brake and accelerate at the same time. Or I'm sure you've heard of the famous Yanoni. You know, he does something very differently with the with his Yanoni brake trace. Yeah, Yanoni's brake trace. And, yeah, is um, something that you don't see in many riders. Mike, but, Mike Norton, I'm sure he alluded to that with Taz. Taz does something similar with the, with the throttle and the brake. That a lot of other people don't do, right? And, and it's, it's a, cert, a certain technique of riding that, if you can do it, you've nailed it. If you can't, it's not something that you can learn overnight. It's something that's been drilled into you as coming th- as you come through, <coughs> and as you adapt to each motorcycle as you ride it. But it, I mean, Ian only back in World <coughs> Bikes this year after his little hiatus. Did you, you've seen the the, uh, the information? Did he have the potential to go? To, to be a contender? How's that for a better word? Um, with all the years out, it'll be tough. But Philip Island is the first race and arguably he's one of the greatest riders around that track. So wouldn't be surprised at the first race. It I always think... throws up anomalies at Philip Island anyway, doesn't it? <coughs> yeah. Usually. <coughs> Excuse me. No, no problem. Um, yeah, we already had a little bit of a joke that probably see him getting pole position there or something that um i think he'll be quick but it will take time for him to adapt and um for sure he's a special talent um but each class is their own he's been away from the sport for a lot of years so you know you saw actually with uh, danilo last year that as the season went on he was starting to learn understand and started not getting the podiums and we spoke to him at um donington we had a chat with him there, and he, and he admitted he's like, yeah, for sure, it's been a lot harder than I anticipated. And he's like, yeah, it has, because you, you kind of expect a, a GP rider to drop straight into World Superbikes and immediately be on the pace. When there's still the weight thing with Danilo, he's still a, a, a bigger rider, especially than Alvaro and Johnny to a degree as well. So that's always going to be something he has to work with. But the bikes, the they're still, you know, they've got two wheels and they go around in circles, but that's where the similarities end in a lot of ways. I think the two, everything's too different now. Um, you know, I can't even, we actually joked about it the other day. I think if you've got your parts list on actually making a GP bike now, I think you're well into the millions, you know, three million or something. If you actually put each part and the yes. price of each part, you won't be far off. Um, Her bike. Per bike, yep. You've got to remember that um, a lot of these parts, 
I mean, imagine, for instance, the old Suzuki team or Christ, you had two bikes. So when you make only six of something or eight of something, then the, the price is really, really high. But um, we said, yeah, if you actually, you know, because you can actually, you have parts list and everything, mileage, everything. Um, if you actually put the price of everything, you won't be far off. And wow. um, I think that's part of the problem. Everything's got too far away, you know. Unless you take the anti-wheelie off, you try getting a GP bike to wheelie now. It's um, you, You'd struggle. In fact, a lot of riders, I think Joanne had one on the Suzuki. He had a button he could press to turn it off. So after a race, he could do so a at wheelie. At least he could do a wheelie on yeah, the slowdown lap. I think it was one of the first things he asked. Just yeah. disengage the anti-wheelie. Yeah, it's like I said, it's not so much just electronics, but how they're designed. You know, the the bikes are a hell of a lot longer. The torque of the engine, there's, everything's quite different. The tyres are different now as well. So, um, in fact, I, from my understanding, that's one of the bigger the bigger issues they have now. Yes. So is there one big thing that's... I, I probably know the answer to this before I ask the question. Is there one big thing that's changed on the electronic side since you started in MotoGP that you could put your finger on? Or is it a culmination of like the aggregation of marginal gains, as Dave Brailsford said? It's just a continuous progression. It starts from adding sensors, understanding a brake, a throttle, the new suspension. Then it goes to having light traction control, then traction control into engine brake, then into a, not just an anti-wheelie, but quite a sophisticated, then it's even traction control. It's not just a traction control, which measures the front and the rear speed, now it measures your, it measures, it, <laughs> I don't even know where to start, the cut pattern, the, um, you can map the, map the engine in a different way, do you retard the engine, do you cut the engine, you know, it, just one thing becomes super complicated. Um, it's also hard for us as well because it's like, um, you make, over the years, you make mathematical channels from the other sensors and calculations and mathematics you can use the problem is now is you have all the engineers back home that do it and you've gone from 10-15 years of doing them all yourselves to others doing them and then you've got to do something yourself and you're like crikey I can't remember how to do that what's the function so you've got to keep a lid on it and an understanding of it but yeah it's Fortunately, if you're in the in the in that area and working with it, you understand as it progresses because you have to. Because if not, you you can get lost quite quickly. Is it something that still excites you for the, the year on year, the new package, the new software package that comes through, and having to deal with it, or do you think, hang on, what's next? <sighs> it's not so much. Excites me. <laughs> uh, understanding it's nice. In fact, I'm actually because also you, as a crew chief or an electronic engineer, you can decide what you give the rider. Um, yes. It's not like a button where you go right. Okay, ninety percent rider, ten percent electronics. However, um, you can influence a lot how the bike runs, how much power. Um, my way has always been less of the electronics, more of a natural bike. 
um, and then let the rider do the rest. I've always said if it's too electronically driven, they want to do something different, then they can't. Um, you know, uh, I think of all the bikes, the Suzuki was the one which had the least electronics. Um, it was quite a natural engine, but obviously the cross-plane crankshaft is a little bit different. But yeah, I I prefer the rider can do what he wants with the bike, and then it's sort of there in the background, catch a slide or. Was that something that helped show Joanne at his best, that you could use the talent of the rider more than turning electronics up a little bit? Um, I think if there was one thing with him that we did, um, and I did the same with DJ, is the bike was quite natural. So if they were in a battle with someone else, they had a little bit more power because they had it in the hand. Um, It's... It's mainly the torque side and the TC side because you can set it in two different ways. It's very easy to go very low, save the tyre, but it's a different thing to have a lot of power. The rider do it. Then when he needs to, he can overtake, but then when he needs to save the tyre, he can. Because that's the other thing. It's not 20 laps go as fast as you can anymore. You've got tyres that degrade quite quickly. Um, It's quite natural with more power and everything and, how quickly the races, the tyres degrade quicker. So um, there's always new things, you know, there's the, the tyre pressure things that are coming in now, which is the That's biggest. super critical as well, isn't it? Because that affects podiums, race results. That probably is the most critical rule brought in in the last few years because it has such an effect after the race. Yeah, it's, I'm probably quite famous on social media because I don't like it. Uh, because I'm one of these people, I like to be in control, I know what I'm doing. Mm. And it's the one thing I can't because, in fact, if anything, I have less sleep at night because I run through the races of what's going to happen because I'm trying to predict whether the rider's going to be in a group on his own. Um And they change a lot depending whether you are on your own or, or with a group. So... And we're talking, you know, to 0.2, 0.3 bar could be half a second a lap, which is over a race, it could be 10, 20 seconds. So it's the biggest headache and it's the biggest thing you can't control. You can go safe. Yeah. You can go safe and go, right, well, if that's the minimum on his own, I'll just put that in. The problem is if the rider's riding at two bar and, you might, you know, you might as well pull in the pits because he's not going to do anything. It's impossible. It doesn't matter who he is. So there's also a lot at night now with uh, talking with the rider. Um, you're almost trying to plan the race between you. What's going to happen? So you set the pressures. There's that much strategy involved in the actual races now. That you, I mean, I've seen it when when you watch at the front and you see there's, there's times where Banyaya's waited or. Um, and just let the tyres come to him or not be in a certain position on the track at a certain time. It it, it doesn't feel, as you said earlier, as fast <coughs> as we can for 20 laps. There's so much strategy involved in the first two-thirds of the race so that the bike can be in its kind of optimum condition for the last third of the race. Like Jorge Martin, how he can control his race. If you're away at the front, you're in your own world, aren't you? You can control what you do there. But if you have to work your way through, 
Yeah, you've got to be confident. Firstly, you've got to start on the front row. And second, you've got to be confident you get away um, to set everything as it is. Because if you don't and you have a bad start, in fact, we spoke for hours before the Saturday night before the Qatar race. Knew he had the fastest pace. Knew DJ could win the race. But we had one problem and he struggles off the line. And he always loses three, four places. Yeah. And like I said to him, I said, if I set you the pressure of you being on your own because you're going to win and you have a bad start, we've had it because you won't be able to overtake and go through. And you've got a golden opportunity. So we discussed and I said, probably the best situation is you just sit behind to do 50% of the race or 75 just to make absolutely sure. Make sure... So that way we can start with a little bit less with the pressures. Less means that when you're in the slipstream, they're higher. Yes. And then you've got an opportunity to overtake. And then in the last few laps, you can overtake. However, I said, by doing this, do not go first. Because if you go first, you'll be under. And so we literally wrote the script of what was going to happen. It's nice. Very rarely you can... No, it doesn't pace. often do that, does it? It's motorcycle racing at the end of the day. But... I don't think it's something you should have to do. But unfortunately, as it is at the minute, until something changes, you have to. It's not It's not quite Formula One, but to actually have... It takes away from the spectacle a little bit that you have to strategize a race rather than just whoever's fastest can go off and... You know, if you're fastest, go off and win it. Yes. Which I... is the essence of motorcycle racing, isn't it? I've always been a believer like that. Um, it's like they say, those are the cards that you've been given. So you have to do it. I mean, we got away with quite a bit because we were like this in two or three races. And then unfortunately in the last one, um, Saturday, Valencia, we, it was with the front. Um, we were too much on the limit. So for the Sunday, we went a lot more. I think 02 uh, and I said, don't worry, we've gone super safe like this. And then he did the whole race on his own until the last few laps where he caught everyone up. And I can remember watching the race going, Christ, you've done the whole race on your own. And then I saw someone from here to outside the box and I'm like, no, oh no. <laughs> so I knew, uh, I knew that we'd, well, but the worst thing was we were like 0.01 and it, for one lap. And it's like, crikey, it's... Wow. The margins are incredible. Across all of MotoGP and, and the parameters that you work in, the <laughs> the infin, infinitesimal margins, the point ones, your point zero ones, zero zero ones in a lot of cases. Yeah, I just don't... You're sort of in the, in the middle at the moment. You either take a chance, safety of the rider, everything's normal and they're okay, or do you go the other way, super safe, you're going to be all right, but then you're not going to do anything unless you're first and whole shot. And if not, you're going to struggle. It's a proper roll of dice scenario. So we'll, we'll see. I still think there's discussions because I don't think anyone's happy. No. I don't think any rider is happy. Um, you know, we've just got to see. It's like anything. Sometimes you have to put the rules in, see what happens. I'm hoping from last year they can... See the positive sides yes. in the, you know, I think the rear was really positive last year. Then they can see a lot of consistency. Um, it's the front. The front sure one, yes. Yeah. 
needs work. <laughs> it's almost, and I don't know how much you enjoy the football, it's it's almost like VAR, isn't it? You celebrate the win, you come back to pit lane and they've gone, sorry, no. <laughs> yeah, well, I thought, do you know what? I thought that was good and I was watching the, uh, was it Egypt? Because they got knocked out. No, Morocco, sorry. Mm. And I think South Africa scored and the goal should have been cancelled for an offside, but the VAR decided that it wasn't. I was like, well, okay, I thought I understood the system, obviously not. It's how it should work, but it doesn't have to. Maybe it went for a toilet break or something, I don't know. Where We'll come back on to your career. The, the MotoGP thing is, is fascinating. I don't want to keep you here longer than necessary because you've got so much to do. Um, where did you go after GSE? What was the, the career path after that? Uh, I got the opportunity to work with uh, Haga, with Ducati at uh, Renegade. Um, in fact, the the owner Mark Griffiths, uh, I met him again after about fifteen years uh, last year or the year before, because his daughter is with Sasaki. Oh, of course, uh, and he manages Sasaki. So, uh, in fact, we've done a few flights together recently. So, we've been catching up. Uh, that was um, great experience. Incredible rider. Um, one of those weird things because I think we won probably more races than anyone but we had a lot of uh, DNFs due to a few technicals um, and then yeah after that for family reasons personal I came back to BSP um, um, yeah and then got to work with some good riders um, Lavia wasn't bad <laughs> championship yep First year, they never saw a track, so uh, that was a good one. And then, uh, obviously, the 2009 with Leon Camier. Um, you always pray for a year like that, but um, not how it started, because that was probably the most stressful start I've ever <laughs> had. I don't think we started the bike until the night before the first round. People still don't believe it, but... They won't do. Excuse me one the- second. Your microphone's just unclipped. There we go. That's better. That season was incredible. The the bikes they were, were they Belgada. Yes, they were Yamaha. Belgada yeah. Yamahas, weren't they? And was that, was that the last or one of the last years of Magneti Morelli as well? Before it went to Evo, and then the BSB started it going was down Magneti the Motec. Morelli, yes, going down the Motec uh, route. But for for Leon and for James Ellison as, as the other as a second rider. It yeah, was an incredible was, season. Like I said, the winter and the start was one of the most stressful because the bike had never even started before we even got to Brands. Um, in fact, I think we did a few all-nighters the Tuesday, Wednesday, just putting sensors on it. And then the first round, which was at Brands Indy, um, it had a literally a stock frame, stock swing arm, like you buy on the in the shop, and I, again, people still don't believe it. But um, the engine was a road engine. The only thing was it was a proper electronic system. Yeah, still not running to the optimum because we just put it together. Um, and it was a case of start the weekend right first. Let's see if it runs, and I think it stopped in the first session. Then um, it was a case of. Uh, when we saw, okay, it's not doing too bad, you know, maybe get a point or two points 
every point counts. And then it went quite quickly from getting a point to maybe a top 10, top five. And then I think by Saturday night, we're like, Christ, could it really even get a podium? And then, yeah, race two, Leon won it. And it was like, okay, that's... <laughs> when you've got a completely stopped bike, you're like, crikey, when everything else arrives. <laughs> and then I can't, I can't remember. I think there was, whether it was round two or three and... Um, I think the frame and the swing arm arrived and it was still a 170 horsepower engine, you know, you buy in the shop. And I think he won by 15 seconds at Alton Park. And we're like, wow, okay, it's going to be a good year. And I think the only races he didn't win was because of, I think he got disqualified with about three corners to go at Cadwell for oil or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, an electronic at Donington. Um yeah, I don't, I, yeah, it wasn't a bad year. It was Colin right as well, wasn't it? Yeah, Colin again. It, it, keeps, it comes round, doesn't it? It just comes I round. I learned comes round. so much from Colin, you know. Um, I lived quite close to him, so we he used to pick me up everywhere, drop me off. So I got to hear all the phone calls with the riders everywhere. <laughs> so I learned, you know, I've been in some really famous meetings with Colin. Like, um, Oh, God. <laughs> I remember a good one with Max Biaggi. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, but you, you know, he had so much experience, winning mentality, ruthless. So I got to learn so much from him. Um, not just the bike world, the riders, everything, the girlfriends of the wife, you know, it, was, it opened up quite quickly to a young kid. You know, I was only 21, 22 at the time. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Strange old world, isn't it? Yeah, it is a strange <laughs> old world. So I've got many years of that experience, which was, you know, which has helped me quite a lot. That's what you can't buy. That's the thing of working of someone with, with, with Collins, not only his reputation and his success, but his work ethic. He was, from what I understand, he was a hard man to work and ride for, but the rewards and working as a team far outweighed his, not, I was going to say tantrums, but they're not, far outweighed his, his uh, huffing and puffing. Yeah, I think, I mean, if you got nearly out of intrigued. But I'm sure any rider that's worked with him, if you asked who was the most ruthless or that, would say Colin. But yeah. probably if you asked who the best was, they'd also say Colin. So I've not had anybody in the show that's had a bad word to say about him. No, there you go. <laughs> and that speaks for itself, especially in our, in our motorcycling world. It's, I mean, it, it says a lot. It's not the just man. the bike, about life, everything, you know, <laughs> even <laughs> student loans and all sports. He was like a secondary dad. He's a second dad. Time. Yeah, so. Um, a real pivotal time for you as well, both coming into a new environment in motorcycle racing and following the career path. You couldn't have had a better mentor, really. No, no. Like I said, I got the winning ticket quite early. So, um, and like anything, a bit of success does help you, you know, when you're looking for other jobs because it's not easy, as no. people always think, that you leave one place, go to another. You know, there's, um, like you said, there's, one of you <laughs> for each part of the team. So um, you need success. If not, you're not going to find 
the next job or the That's next right. job. So um, for sure, he was pivotal, uh, especially in the early part of uh, my career. Is the one single big thing that you learned from him? <laughs> so I'm trying to think of something on bikes, but I'm thinking <laughs> um, that's why I didn't specify. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I had to go over speed bumps in South Africa <laughs> when well, you sat in a boot. <laughs> well, yeah. funny you say that. The last question that I will ask you before we finish, that I ask every new guest that comes onto the show, is what's your best hire car story? So you can have that in the back of your mind before we get to the end of it. Oh, <laughs> not, not now. <laughs> Wait until we get to the end of that one. Right. That gives you a bit of a heads up anyway. Um, where from there? What happened after? after so that was 2009, wasn't it? Did you, did you go with Leon then? No. Um, the factory Yamaha called me um, and it was I was ready then to go back to the world scene. Uh, and they asked me to go to World Superbike. So I worked in the factory team. Um, and uh, James Toesland was returning from MotoGP. Uh, I did two years there um, with James and then Eugene as a rookie. Um, of Probably the most frustrating was the end of 2011 because I've always had a thing where the second year I've worked with a rider, we've won a championship up. So we'd done everything. We were progressing, started winning races, did the double at Monza, and it was like ready for the second year. And then curtains came down because Yamaha pulled out. Um, so that was frustrating because I'm sure Eugene would have been a world champion um, if it had done another year. I mean, the bike was incredible as well. Um, in fact, the <laughs> arguably one of the strongest teams I've ever had. I mean... There was Silvana Galbacera, Michele Gaddo, who's head of all electronics in Yamaha MotoGP. There's the mechanics now in MotoGP, Yamaha, um, Ali G, who's Bautista, you know, it was Pete Mansovic, you know, the team was incredible level. Um, and then from there, uh, worked with Crescent um, to go with Leon, yeah. um, Paul Denning. Um I had one of them finished years because we started from, you know, we were really, really struggling to start with, um, especially electronically everything, but the bike in general, you know, they'd stepped up to World Sewer Bikes. Um, and the most incredible thing was um, going from, I think, nearly getting lapped the first race to podiuming at the end of the year. And um, it's the first time started working on developing the bikes as well. You know, um, we had a prototype with Pete at the workshop that we were, you know, started from triple clamps and links and all sorts. Um, wow. So worked quite a lot on development. And then, um, yeah, then I got a call from Aspar and Nicky Hayden to, because they needed someone to develop the electronics there. So that was the one year I haven't crew chiefed in the last 19 years. Um, and then went to MotoGP and then realised it's a, you're with the big boys, definitely another level and everything. Um, and yeah, from there on, um, with Aspar, Carol Abraham, there was Bautista, uh, and then to Factory Suzuki. 
with um, Mia. That didn't go too bad. Congratulations Until, on yeah. the championship. Yeah, thank you. And then, um, yeah, four incredible years. Then, unfortunately, uh, must be somewhere where I go, but they pulled the plug. Um, <laughs> There's a pattern for me. Yeah, for this I know. Ranking. I'm just starting to understand that now. <laughs> it's only when you go back through your career, you suddenly go, hang on a minute. <laughs> yeah, and why the bad apple here? Um, yeah, <clears throat> that was a big shock because obviously it was a very tight fit yeah. team. Um, and then, yeah, Ducati gave me an opportunity to uh, work with them and could have been in a few different places or riders, but in the end, um, with a bit of movement and everything, it was uh, decided to go with Deja, which suited me perfectly, you know, because it was his second year and he was, you know, he struggled in the first year, but also from... My point of view, it was better to have a rider like himself um, than someone going for a championship because I had to understand the bike. So it was difficult for him, but it was also difficult for me because, yeah, they are it's a MotoGP bikes, but they're all completely different and it takes a while to actually understand something. Um, then there's always that argument when a rider goes and does he bring his team and everything is a 50-50. There's understanding people on a personal level, but there's also understanding the bike. And, you know, I'm going to totally admit that it took me a while to understand it, not just, you know, how the engine works or the wheels go around, but how it physically so works. It what you, When you change something, it reacts in a different way to another one. It's... Um, you know, one or two millimetres on a Suzuki was quite a massive thing. You know, the, the Japanese would raise their eyebrows if you went three. I think if you said three to Gigi, you'd just go, all right, okay. <laughs> you know, it's different bikes, different concepts, different. Um, so you have to understand how they work. But also different, um, it is, it's that different work ethic as well, isn't it? You've, you've worked for the, the factory Japanese who have a very set way. It's the, the HRC, Yamaha, Suzuki. It's that Japanese way of working. It's small steps. But then you come to Ducati and you have a different way of working. What's been the, the biggest thing you've had to adjust to moving from Suzuki to Ducati? <laughs> I think the biggest thing is the meetings in the evening. Because with Suzuki, 9 o'clock was 8.55, sat down, ready. The meeting would start at 8.58. Nine o'clock meeting with Ducati, I realised after about three or four rounds that I was the only one in there for about 10, 15 minutes. I was like, oh, they changed the time or something. Everything's a little bit different. Yeah, everyone has their own way. Yeah, yeah. So uh, obviously there's more riders, eight riders, you know, everyone's the management, GG, Ricardo, they'll be passing forwards to the next. But I um, I think that's taking the joking aside. The having the eight riders and the data and everything is a is a different way to work because you have so much more information. I mean, it's not everybody has access to everybody's data. Not everyone has access to, within. I have levels. access. Yeah, uh, all the crew chiefs we have access. Ah, okay, uh, to all the other riders. Which have all their data, all their electronics, everything. So um, you don't want riders looking at other riders' data. 
Because <laughs> blow their mind. Well, <laughs> they're all different. You've got the ones that will come in two minutes before the session and they'll have a look at a few graphs and, um, you know, Joanne, look at a couple of graphs um, after the session, maybe in the morning you'd come and have a little look. But unless there was something important or someone was faster, DJ loved, you know. Sorry, I got it. Sorry. Um, Eight riders is a lot with him because he likes to look at all the riders. Oh, <laughs> um, so there's a lot. He'd still be in his leathers an hour and a half after the session. He's like, yeah, you do know on a Saturday that qualifying starting in about ten minutes. You, you, you know, I need, I need to do some work if you want to go forward. Um, he, they're all different. Um, my current rider now. Um, he just wants to know who's going. If there's a rider that's going faster, where it is, that's it. <laughs> that's easy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's so easy. They're all different. What was Nicky Hayden like to work with? I mean, we, he, he's massively missed across the sport, but having a, an opportunity to work with him at Aspar and, and work with the, the world champion. Amazing. Um, arguably the rider that made me make the biggest step in work preparation and information, everything, because Nikki was a, so I said DJ was liked information. Well, Nikki was, I think he was quite famous in the paddock. He was quite demanding on what he wanted and everything. Well, actually it brought me up to another level because you used to have to print 50 sheets after every session. You know, he want, it wasn't just showing on a graph. Um, his assistant Nick would come get the pack take it to his motor home he'd analyse it then come back we'd talk through it so there was a hell of a lot of uh, other side of the work preparation planning he wanted to you know all the meetings meeting every evening every session with the Michelin guy the Olin's guy everything was prepared planned how many exits how many laps uh, it was quite meticulous um, you could see with Nicky there was incredible talent. Uh, you could also see that he was struggling already with his wrist from the injury. Um, but, um, yeah, I remember, I don't think I've seen another rider faster than him through fast left-hand corners, obviously with his history and what he used to ride in America, but he had an incredible talent. Um, but, yeah. Just one of those, um, you know, you used to always say with your CV, you know, you used to put it on, it was high on there and because it's an incredible opportunity. Um, yeah, will always be missed because actually we ended up going quite close together. Yeah. In fact, uh, when he went to her World Superbikes, we were still texting, communicating. So it was a awful tragedy when uh, when the news broke out. Very difficult time, and especially as you get so close, it's a, it's a loss for fans, but for family and for crew and for the team, it I can't even imagine what it's like to be in that situation at all. And you don't want to. No, I mean it's. What are your biggest worries? Um, arguably, not arguably, it is whenever you do anything or whatever you do, it's the safety of the rider that is number one there's no 
taking short measures or anything. You know, I'm even quite hard on the rider sometimes. Um, you know, I think the airbags can go off a couple of times now, can't they? Yeah. Uh, and they two come charges, in, haven't they? Yeah. Yeah, they come in and they're all scuffed and wrecked and they go, oh, no, no, I've got another one. And I'm like, the office is upstairs. Go and put another set of leathers and... Um, because it is a horrible area, but all you can do is just make sure everything's right, safety. And I think that's going back to other things like tyre pressure and everything else. It is quite stressful because that's another area. Everything is an area on the safety of the rider. Um, it's not go as fast as possible, but it's bloody dangerous. It's, it is your number one, number one thing. On, the, on, a, on a brighter note, what tell me about the the world championship season and developing Joanne from a, a MotoGP rookie and actually having that um, that path of being being part of that journey from sitting him on the bike for the first time, making sure the bars and the pegs everything's where it needs to be to lifting the MotoGP world championship at the end of the following season. It was a crazy first two years because um, I think the first race he was fighting for the win at Qatar. Uh, it's always been a good race of mine, a specialist track anyway. But what he did was incredible for a rookie. Then you sort of, you have to remember again, uh, this is what I was saying about pre-season testing and everything. You tested for three days there and then you race. So for a rookie, and it will be the same this year, so you got to take with a pinch of salt what rookies do in their first race at Qatar because you've got two days testing before the race. It makes a massive difference. So it's a completely different ball game when you yeah. go to another track. 20 laps, bang, qualifying mode. So Joanne had that luxury of the test. First race, incredible, and everyone's like going, wow. You know, this hasn't been done since God knows how many years, 20, 30 years. And then you go to round two, whoa, one of the hardest racetracks because it's all about tyre life and how you manage a tyre. And he absolutely, you know, I don't think I've seen a rider since he reached over 200 degrees with a tyre in one lap on his out lap. And, uh, you know, I think there was discussion of it being a bad tyre and everything. It was like, well, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Two, two, it was 200 degrees in one lap. But if... I mean, he jokes about it since, and his the photographs when you see the smoke, and you know, he absolutely battered it. And um, from then to halfway through the year was wasn't a disaster, but it was a big learning curve. And it almost took that time for him to go right, step it back a little bit, uh, finish the races, understand. It was almost like that first race had given him something that wasn't quite... It's that false confidence. Yeah, almost. false confidence, exactly. Um, and then uh, there was a test at Bruno. And that was the first moment we actually really had an opportunity to change the bike for him and understand. He'd had half a year's experience, so um, he knew how the bike reacted, everything. So yeah. you can then, I always say half a year, then you can make the bike more for the rider. And um, there was just one famous, we moved him 
we had this idea of something that we could do with him. Uh, so we completely changed his riding position. And he went first, came in and went, that was horrendous. And we went, we were all expecting him to go, yeah. <laughs> and he went, that was horrendous. And we went, oh, but you went faster. I know, he says, but don't like it. I want to go back. So, yeah. So we put all the position back and he went like half a second slower again. And he came in and he, you could see he was confused. And it was him and he goes, can we go back again? I, I just need to check. And he went and did another time even faster than he was first. And he came in and I could see he was never used to leave his helmet on that long. And he was, I can remember him like trying to understand what the hell had just gone. And he, and I'm going to be honest, he says, I feel awful, uncomfortable, everything. But he said, the lap time's easy. Yeah. So they don't understand. And then um, that was the first moment followed what happened later in that test because he had that awful um, technical issue. So he crashed at over 200 mile an hour, which then messed the season up because yeah. uh, he couldn't do the next races. Um, and he wasn't fully fit until coming back for 2020. But in that time, you then see the progression you want to do. So it was your top 10s to top 8, 7th, 6th, 5th, and then every race was slightly better. Um, so when you going into 2020, um, that we, not going to say win the championship, but we were going to be hoping to compete for at least top five. Um, and then the craziest thing was the, after the COVID and everything, the first race where he crashed uh, was the first time I went, wow, we have actually got incredible race pace. But, you know, he got, got taken out. Got to build, build the bike again, but we know he's fast. Yeah. Then... Um, Hereth's always a funny thing where you start you finish you just can't overtake there in the heat um, and it was ridiculous I think it was 60 degrees track that year then he got taken out by Laquena round three so we were pretty much 20 in the championship in a very short year but it was weird and it was Bruno that the everything clicked and everything changed with him because we Brad Binder won that race uh, but we had probably the fastest race pace and Bruno was also about saving tyres. However, he was so saving the tyres in the first two, three laps that he lost seven, eight positions, got taken by Laquena into the penultimate last left, came in and went, never going to happen again. He said, to be with, you know, riding at the back with them, save it. No. says, next race. Says, I'm going to look after my tyres, but when I go, I'm going to go. And that was it. And uh, I think we then went to Red Bull Ring, wasn't it? And um, yeah, it was once he'd got the first podium, then. It was the, mon it was the monkey off the back, wasn't it? That yeah. was it? You can do it now. Go we and knew do the it. pace was there, but yeah. it was just lining the stars and everything. A little bit like last year with DJ. There was pace earlier, but the stars weren't aligned. The starting position wasn't great. And then, with, yeah, with Joanne, I mean, 
our starting position was horrendous every race we tried everything I think it took till 2021 to actually understand something about that but didn't you go the full season without starting on the front row does that is that something I've just dreamt of sorry to interrupt we're doing our best to grow this show of ours and you can really help with that All we ask is that you like and follow on whichever platform you're listening on. And if you really enjoy what we do, please leave us a review. It's genuinely the most helpful thing you can do after listening to us. Thank you so much. And back to the show. No, no, that's... I'm sure our average starting position is the worst in the history of MotoGP. For a champion. For a champion. Yeah. I think it's like 11th, 12th or something. I'm sure that's stuck in my mind that it's... The the first ever world champion never to start on the front row in, in any of the races. Yeah, I think the best was the one he won when we started second row. Which is a fascinating way of looking at it. Especially nowadays, you have to start on the front row if you want to have a, a chance. Yeah, well, like, for sure my weakest point is qualifying. Because I think in the last five years, I've finished lower than my starting position two or three times in about 70, 80 races. So you can arguably go, I'm very good at race tyres or I am terrible <laughs> at qualifying. Yeah, uh, what would you rather be though? Yeah, but crikey. <laughs> I know the rider maybe isn't ideal on that front. When they, they, they never had it. a pole in MotoGP. Never, in fact, I can count on one hand front rows. Um, I have a suspicion that might change this year. Well, if he doesn't, then we'll know that it's definitely <laughs> me. No, no. He's, uh, if he can't do it. <laughs> in fact, I, the, the, going back to DJ, I said to him at Qatar, I said, you know, we haven't finished lower than we started. And when he started second, just says, you can only win. It's all you can do. That's your bottom line, <laughs> so, mate. That's it. So uh, no pressure, Ditch, but that's what you've got to do. How how much of a different journey was that with DJ for the season compared to Joanne and what you'd done with him? To then come into Digi in his second season, who was who he was lost, wasn't he? Let's, I think it's fair to say after his first season, it, it was a very very difficult first season with the um, not the reputation, but with, with the promise that he came into the class with after Moto Two and his time in in Moto Three. But he, he kind of looks a little bit lost at the end of his first season. Then joins up with yourself, and then you start to see incremental improvements from sort of mid-season onwards once you get to know each other. Is that fair? Yeah, I think there was a lot of things that were extremely harsh. Um, You have to remember the, you know, the double world champion Peko Banyaya, he struggled the first few years, you know, Uh, and he came off winning the Meta 2 world championship. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. um, Luca Marini, really struggled yeah you can say the bike has improved a little bit um or quite a lot <laughs> but they struggled and you know did you said it a few times god you know it took them two three years why am i not allowed two three years because already so <clears throat> it was difficult and you want to make the progression as quickly as possible don't get me wrong but the worst thing in the world is progressing by having one incredible result and then the next one you're 20th and you don't understand why because nothing worked. The most important thing is 
that every weekend gets better. It doesn't matter what track, whether it goes left, whether it goes right, or and that was the thing what he did. Yeah, it was took time, but took time because top tens weren't. You know, if you've got top tens the year before, you'd have been, it'd have been really happy. Um, but all of a sudden, top tens weren't good enough, um, and then. It wasn't that the penny dropped at Maddalika because I think that was his first top, top result, which yeah. was the fourth top independent. Um, we do a little thing where you see lap pace, average pace, average split sectors. And we could see from uh, it was Silverstone because he, Jorge Martin knocked him off the track and was completely last. Yeah. And um, he actually closed on Banyaya, who won the race. Um in the following 10 laps. Um, result didn't look great, especially when he came in for red tyres because, you know, he saw rain that no one else did. <laughs> you can, um, bless him. I understand. It's England. You know, it's going to rain at some point. <laughs> he was like, come on, come on. This is my <laughs> moment. I think he was waiting for one spot. He got one spot and uh, I thought, this is my moment. But yeah. Roll the dice. If it had seen what we did and stayed out, he probably would have caught the leaders. Yeah. But that was the first time you could see it. And then Assen was tough. The pace was there, but you start fourth, fifth row. And it was always the same thing, that the pace was there, but you're starting way, way too far back. And then um, you need a bit of luck. And at Mandalika, the race spread out very, very quickly. So if you have pace and the tyres hadn't gone through the roof, which they hadn't, he was able to work his way through um, and was the fastest on track. So you knew it was there. And then, like we said, to get your first podium and everything is all about starting first or second row. Um, and that's what he did at Australia, um, Qatar, and uh, even Valencia, he wasn't too far away. It wasn't. Not too far away means for him starting eighth and not twentieth. Or um, so it was. It was a nice progression. But you know, we we did see it earlier. It just takes time for everything to click into place. You know, it's not just lap time, one lap. Where do you finish? Um, how are you doing tests? Like I said, in tests, anybody can be fast in tests because you do so many laps. Um, it's when you go, you know, not even Qatar uh, because obviously we test there. So it won't be until you go to Portimao and you get uh, 45 minutes, 25 laps, 24 laps, FP1 and then FP2, you've got to go like a bat out of hell. And that is not one easy place to... That's Q1, Q2, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, because only 10 go through. So... um, Wow. And it dictates your weekend. And now there's two races, so a bad qualifying, and that's not one race you've screwed up, that's two. So it's, but that's when you know, when you can go out FP1 and you're fast. How has the schedule, uh, how have you adjusted to the schedule, having now a race on a Saturday, a race on a Sunday, 20 rounds from March to November? It's, we have some, a lot of our listeners and viewers, they, they know the sport, they understand it. 
that I can't imagine. Well, it starts this weekend. It's early February to the last test at November before you, you have like six weeks off and then you're back on it, or six weeks off and you're back on it again. It, I can't imagine the intensity that that's having. How, how are you adjusting to that? Um, I think everyone's quite honestly struggling. Um, every team's different. Um, Motor GP, satellite, less personnel. It's extremely tough. Um, again, each bike is a little bit different, but you know, we watch all the races with the riders from the year before, and you always look the same. You can't tell much different, everything. But I tell you what. I've noticed, <laughs> noticed in this last year, it's like, pretty hell, I've aged a lot in one year. It's like, oh, next year will be like Gandalf or somewhere else. <laughs> because it takes so much out of you. Yeah. Um, you've got to prepare for time attack straight away, FP2. Um, FP3, you've almost got to work on race setup, but you can't crash because you've got qualifying straight after. Um, again, qualifying, you're now have a sprint race. You can't, oh, a crash there, it take, you know, unfortunately, I had the rider that crashed the most in FP3, which was the worst time. Um, because they're not easy, these bikes, you know, once upon a time in a half an hour, an hour, you could rebuild one, but, you know, you have a crash in the sprint race or anything, you are, you know, you might as well bring your pillow into the to the garage because it's a long, long night. And um, it's not just that. There's more information. Um, once upon a time, you had a few graphs, you'd look, a few sector times, are you faster, slower? Now, there's so much analysis. There's so much analysis in tyres, reports. Um, it takes it out of everyone. Um, not just me, but no, also... No you know, the, the, the mechanics. Um, you've got a race on Saturday and Sunday, so it's not just put a race engineer on a Saturday night, so that's one engine change. you now got to do it on a Friday night as well as a Saturday night because you've got a sprint race because, um, you know, you have to do everything for the maximum performance. So if the maximum performance on a Friday night is to change it for a Saturday, engine, you know, it's, it's tough, a lot, lot tougher. How, I mean, that for me is is something as 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 a from a layman's perspective and from viewing from the outside of MotoGP. To us, it's the same bike all weekend, and it couldn't be further from the truth in terms of engine. If if you're going to change it, you got different. Well, do you have an allocation of? Is it six, seven, seven, uh, and eight? I think if you do twenty races, I can't remember the number twenty twenty one. So you don't run one to its mileage, swap it next one to its mileage they're rotated through the, the wow I can't go into technical everyone will have their own way yes of course um, as a general overview the key is is it's a machine um, they will optimise at a specific moment I can't say how many kilometres you can do with it but um it's all about maximising performance. So if kilometres A is the maximum performance and you need that for the Saturday race and then you need 
B for Sunday yes. race. You have to do that, and it takes. You know, um, I did something which I don't normally ever do, but I did it at a race last year. He won, so I'm not complaining. <laughs> but we, he had a favoured bike, favoured frame. Yeah. Um, it's easy for me to say you can't see a single thing, but they're the ones that sit on it and say, no, no, I like that one. Um, so we changed the engines for this, you know, from one bike to the other bike so that he had the best engine, best frame, best mileage. Sounds like an easy change. Take two engines and yeah. But I think we were there till one o'clock in the morning to, yeah, it's a, there's a hell of a lot of it that goes into it. But um, that's what you're there it's for. That's kind of what you sign up for, isn't it? Yeah. In the night, you, you know, you're not clocking off at six o'clock and heading off to hospitality and that's it for the day. No, it's great when that happens. It's <laughs> if they barrel roll it into turn one and you're like, yeah, that was a good word of eight hours. And to be honest, my boys uh, were brilliant yeah. and they were, um, you know, they're the same. I think it's a job. You do it. You get paid. You pay the bills. But there's the other half that um, you're all there because you love the sport, you know. Um, so it's not a case of uh, wake up, nine o'clock, finish five, right, five o'clock, gone. There is no time, you no. know. I've left the track at eight, half eight at night. I've left the track at three in the morning. Back through the gate. At you seven. do what you need to do. There's no, yeah. you don't get a bonus because you've stayed an extra hour. Is it? You get the bonus of standing on top of the podium. <laughs> You're getting the rider up there. Or the, mm, that would be nice. Well, the, Q, <laughs> the, Q, the kudos, I'll give you that. <laughs> you know, the podium bonuses and things like that. That's the, the rider's world, isn't it? <laughs> How difficult is a MotoGP bike to ride compared to a World Superbike compared to a BSB bike? I mean, from a riding point of view, I can't, I'm not the rider, so I can't really, I can tell you from a technical exactly. point, from what I see. Yeah. Um, they are super, super stiff. Long, stiff. Um, you need temperature in the tyres to work. You need temperature in the discs to work. Um, and they're quite cutthroat. They're designed to work in specific operating settings and everything. You go out the window and they don't work. Um, uh, I think you see a lot of people with uh, Moto2, actually, that go to Supersport. Moto2 is brutal. They, they are awful bikes. They are so rigid. In fact, you see now that... Uh, Moto2 riders that jumped to MotoGP seem to progress pretty quickly. Um, and I think for that reason, they are built like a GP bike. They're stiff. They are. So they go to, you've seen them go to super sport yeah. and then they just clear up. Uh, and I think, you know, Bulik has struggled. Um, he went to world super sport and, you know, he could have ridden with one hand. He was, uh, they're just different bikes. They're more flexible. Um, to go the other way, I think, is a hell of a lot harder. A lot, lot harder. Um, I think partly with how the classes are done, the organisers want the guys that go into GP to have a 
realistic opportunity because once yes. upon a time you needed years and years, whereas now, I think that's the thing. You've got to hit the ground running, haven't you? Pretty yeah. much, and amongst twenty six of the fastest riders in the world, they're all world champions. Good luck. Yeah, it's an incredible. Way. Speaking of Moto Two, that brings brings us to like it's a nice little segue into rider management and looking after Jake. That's been a, a journey and a, and a half with him, hasn't it? Yep. Um, yeah, it's just been incredible in the sense that when he first started with uh, Lee, helped out, uh, they wanted to put an extra rider. Uh, we've just, you know, just been good friends. Um, Sarah, some other call me Uncle Frankie, which is nice. Um, I've just always had their best interest. Um, people say manager and everything it's just uh, I've always just helped him yeah. just uh, I saw a lot of talent in him as well you don't know how far he goes I knew he'd go far um, we don't know how far he'll go because I don't think um, he's still peaked it's, it's very different uh, people have to remember there's a big thing about age and everything it's like Troy Bayliss. How old was he when he first started riding? We come from different uh, different backgrounds, different cultures, so it's, it's it's physically impossible. You get an 18-year-old from the UK riding a motor two bike. Impossible. 100%. Not in my lifetime it'll no. happen. Um, I mean, that's another story, what needs to change. That's, so That's a whole podcast on the yes, phone. Exactly. That, <laughs> uh, yeah, don't get me started on that. So We'll save that for later in the year. <laughs> It's just been great to see the progression uh, and quite quickly got him to the World Championship, which was nice. And yeah, to see him last year winning races and um, he's incredible and deserves everything. He's going to challenge for the championship this year. No doubt about that. The the, The continuity of the team and the network that he has. What do you see after that? Do you, do you see MotoGP? Do you see potentially a switch to Worlds? Because the only reason I ask is that in the time that Jake's been in Moto2, Augusto Fernandez has been and gone. Pedro's been and gone. Now, Pedro is an incredible talent, and he's um, a potential alien in that respect. But there are riders that have sort of come through, and Jake just hasn't quite had that opportunity to go into the big class yet. Would you suggest that that's becoming less likely because of the... The, the Spanish and the Italians coming through? It's like, I, I go back to where you come from, the route you come through. Um, it's how the system is. Uh, you have a young Spanish rider. I think it's like uh, Piqueras who wouldn't I yeah. admire him. I was watching him all last year. He is a special talent. Red Bull Rockies champion. Yep. Uh, and he's going to jump straight into Leopard. So even if he struggles, he's going to be top 10 because of the team he's in. Yes. Uh, It's not to take anything away. Someone like Pedro is a special talent for sure. Um, But some of these riders have nice stepping stones and it makes can take years off um, takes years off moving each of step to the yeah. next one. 
So it helps, you know, British rider isn't going to jump into the Aspar Moto3 or the KTM Moto3 or the Leopard. It's not going to happen. Agreed. They've got to stand out and hopefully one of them picks them up and takes them. Um, and then the same going into Moto2. Um, you know, looking at previous world champions, Aki's won God knows how many of the last five or six. Um, doesn't mean they go to MotoGP and they're going to be world no. beaters. Uh, but, you know, he's a friend of mine and he does an incredible job, but he obviously does something right because anyone who's jumped on that bike goes very, very they're all race, fast. They're all, if they're not world champions, they're race winners on a regular basis. Yeah. So, um, Jake's in a great team. Uh, I used to be at Aspar, so I know them very yeah. well. Um, they got their first ever wins in Moto2 with the with the Triumph. So they are on an upward spiral. So Jake uh, Jake doesn't have the luxury of some of the others. So he has taken more years because he didn't even know the tracks. No, absolutely. Some of the others have, you know, they've ridden around Portimao, Jerez, Montmelo since they were 10 years old. Three for two seasons. Just to at least yeah. know which way the tracks go. Exactly. So, you know, there was a, there was a thing I noticed with Jake in his third year when he suddenly started podiuming. They were all uh, in uh, international circuits. So, your Malaysia's, your Philip Islands, uh, America. Um, and for me, there was a very clear reason that um, he's level of knowledge of the tracks is similar to the others and then he can showcase what he does. So I have no doubt he's improved every single year. He'll do the same this year and changing to new tyres, I think that's going to be the biggest difficulty for everyone. Pirelli's, uh, aren't they? They're yeah, they're but... Changing to Pirelli's. Not the BSB Pirelli's, but the... Tyres always uh, throw a spanner in the works. It's a major factor for a motorcycle. <laughs> yep. It was for somebody somewhere that's always struggled. He'll, he'll have got the uh, the golden ticket. <laughs> somebody, somebody will have one somewhere. Um, what have we got? These okay. What's been your most memorable moment throughout your whole career? Oof. I think. Well, it has to be the the, the MotoGP World Championship. I did wonder because there's there's two ways of looking at it. It might be, it might be a certain rider reaching a certain potential. It might be the World Championship. It might be something clicking with you as a as a data engineer and suddenly go, yeah, that's why we do this. I'm not trying to take it away from the answer. That's the one I expected. It's a tough one because I think each one is their own special. From even back to the first year with winning the British Championship um, with Neil, um, they're all special in their own way. Um, all different achievements. Um, I think just purely because it's the highest you can possibly do. The one yeah. with uh, with Joanne. Change that question slightly. Then, what's your most satisfying moment? <laughs> that gives you a different a different perspective. Um, oof, 
maybe even the most recent one with DJ at Kata, um, just because um, different circumstances, different. You st- oh, maybe, maybe that one, or maybe actually the Crescent one, uh, for the same reasons. Yeah. Um, when you start quite low and you're struggling in the course of a season from to go from in DJ's case last every session at Portimao to first uh, the same with Crescent where we really really struggled to go to podiuming um, uh, is a special thing because it means you've had you know you're not just put tires and fuel and you've had to do something to, to make a difference. Just so, digging deep and yeah, to do that. It's just a different aspect. So, um, yeah. I could tell you the most amusing one. Go on. Mallory Park 2009. Okay. Because, this is when you know your looks in. I can't... Oh, maybe I am wrong, but I'm sure... Because of all the races, I think Leon won 23 in that year. Yeah. But there was a race at Mallory Park and Leon got taken out in the first corner, so he was dead last. And I think the airwaves Ducati riders were like seventh and eighth with one lap to go and they finished first and second. I don't know if you remember. That's incredible. Josh had an unfortunate incident into the... Oh, he did. The, that, that meeting. The hairpin of the bus stop. Because he was on the right-hand side of the track yeah. where the dip was. And, and he'd not crashed. been all weekend. Yeah. And couldn't break in time for the corner. Yeah. And I, I'm, I think... Take out Chris Walker, Simon Andrews. Michael Rutter. Yeah, was, I'm sure there were seventh and eighth or something like that. And they finished first and second. And we're like, crock, you know your looks. <laughs> Did Carl Harris get third? I can't remember. Something like that. I can't remember. There's something. He was riding for Rob Mack maybe at that point. I can't remember. But yeah, that that was one of those Brooksy moments that... I mean, it it can happen to anyone. uh, Oh, no, he can. I'm not pointing a finger because he explained it on another podcast. He's he's not been on that part of the track all weekend, didn't realise there was a dip, went for the back brake and his back wheel's in the air because he'd gone over the kicker and he just couldn't stop. And it, that's... I've done some bits a minute ago. Yeah, no, I think... I can't remember the result. I think I, my biggest memory was Jack Valentine when he was getting off his chair. He was living on me. Yeah. I remember that plain as day. He was absolutely living. That's the side where people are like, whoa. But there, I'll tell you, they're great memories. They was, uh, yeah. Good times everywhere, isn't it? One question that I've asked Spanner, and I thought of it while we were just sat with him, and I've asked the same of, of Mark Woodage recently. And this in no way questions a crew chief's integrity, right? <laughs> this, this is just a genuine, this is a genuine question. For any rider in all the time that you've been doing the job has asked you to make a change that's so, inf- so small that you know that it wouldn't make any difference. Have you told him you've made it, but you haven't? The placebo effect. Now, I've never told them I've done a change and not done it. If they've asked for it and you've said yes, but not done it because you know it doesn't if make a lot of difference. If they've asked for it yeah. and I haven't done it, yeah. I would have told them I haven't done it. Right. 
That's what I say. It's not questioning no, integrity. Never, it's just sometimes I've that... always been on. I've, there's an element of real trust. You break that bond or trust. It's better to fall out and go, no, not doing it, than do it and. No, that's fair. Um, <laughs> I think the only thing I've ever even. Sorry, everything seems to go back to 2009. <laughs> was, uh, it was a special season, mate. A qualifying session, and just for a joke, because I think he'd already won the championship then. Um, when he came in for qualifying, we made a joke that to, because there was this famous thing, I don't know if you ever saw people like pushing on seat units and everything, or forks and going right in these. So Leon came into the pit lane and as a joke, got onto the back, pushed it down and went, right, two clicks and pretended to change <laughs> two clicks. And then he got a pole position. Everyone's going, what? What do you think? That's placebo. That's the same sort of thing. What That's, a game. I mean, it was a bit of a special year so you could do those sort of things. But I just the only com- that confidence, the- didn't it? That was the best thing about it. Um, who's been your most engaging rider in terms of understanding your role? And what you give in terms of data, in terms of crew chief? I think all in their own way. Um, probably the one who understood me most because he used to ring me at two o'clock in the morning occasionally was Greg Lavia. He knew I'd still be up. <laughs> Frankie, I've been thinking <laughs> like this. Um, <laughs> Just like <laughs> Yeah, I don't think anyone... No, that's fair. Um, I've got a couple of stories that we'll finish off with, but let's let's talk about 2024. You have a new rider for 2024, Mark Marquez. You had the, the test at Valencia after the final round. How was that from your seat? Um, probably leading up to it for half an hour, I was a little bit nervous, if I'm honest. Only in the sense that you, you're working for the previous year, so you don't even think about it. Then you arrive to the garage for the test, and then you realise you can't get into the garage because there's about 200 reporters all out, and you're like, whoa. <laughs> okay. We've arrived. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in that moment, you're like, oh, God. <laughs> um, and then as soon as it started, you just go back to being normal again. Um and then again, yeah, they open the garage door and there's another 200 people outside just to remind you. But now, in all honesty, uh, people have taken a lot into the test. Um, it was very special conditions. It was awful. It was really windy. It was cold. Some people probably pushing a little bit. Some people, you know, testing a few parts I've been there we're in a factory team what you do is test parts you don't even do laptops so you can't in fact if anything more frustrated because there was certain things you wanted to do riding positions a few settings but you couldn't because the conditions were so bad in fact the only thing we changed on the bike was uh, for the wind just because we wanted him to do as many laps and that's the other thing Um I think Mark's joked about it that 
you know, when he goes into a Valencia test and he's got like four or five bikes, he had one bike. And do you know how stressful it is that there isn't a problem, a technical problem, a crash or, you know, because you need to do every lap possible to get as much information. So that was also really tricky because you're like, you know, you're just worried something's going to go wrong. Um, so it was good to get information, but it's almost like, okay, good ridden, but there's not really, you can pick a few things up, but not really too much. I'm trying not to ask questions that you can't answer because it's not fair. <laughs> um, because, because from a Grassini perspective, from a MotoG perspective, from Mark's perspective and yours, there, there are things, I guess the things that you've seen on the data from those first 30 odd laps that I would hope give you um, that sort of a raised eyebrow. But was it too soon to to get an, an idea? Because it was it just turning laps? What was the, the sort of the general premise for the test? Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Familiarization. That's the word I'm looking for. I think that's all you can take out of it. You can pick up styles uh, without going into details, but how you use the gas, how you use the brake, front-rear brake combination. Um, you you get an idea and you pick it up. Um, but, you know, I could even see that he was riding at a limit that enabled him to do a half-decent lap time without taking too many chances. Um, I mean, the whole bike was so soft for the wind, just because it was, I think you noticed in the first few laps, he kept going off on turn one because that was the wind. It yep. was terrible. Um, so it was just familiarisation, but not just familiarisation uh, with him with the bike, him with me, him with the mechanics, the team in general. Um, you know, it went smooth, excuse me, a bit of my tongue. It went smoothly, considering. Yeah. Um, but... We will see yes. in a few days. <laughs> That's it. You're, you're reunited tomorrow with the team and with Mark. The, the one thing that sticks out from the, the, the last point we'll make on that, when he came in after his first run, that smile. <laughs> a, a lot's been made of it, but he doesn't smile for no reason. <laughs> what did you make of it? I'll be honest, at the time, I didn't even acknowledge the smile or anything. It wasn't until we'd packed up and I was looking through Twitter or something and I was like, what? It's everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> the back of your head. And Every other smile. Me- and then how many messages? And I was like, okay. I, I, honestly, I didn't at the time even acknowledge it. Um, it's only afterwards and... He just I had a good chat with his dad at the presentation and everything, and he's everyone will see him in a different way. He's just a young lad, very fast young lad, just wants to be fast, win races, compete at the top. Um, so the first thing is to smile and enjoy what you're doing. Get the if fun you do, back in it. Get the fun, exactly. And if he's enjoying himself, 
the rest will come. But um, <laughs> in fact, it's the one thing I said to his dad, the one thing I'll do is so that he enjoys himself and has a laugh. What happens afterwards, maybe in a year or six months, we'll know. But um, the first thing is, is um, he's just a kid that really enjoys riding a bike. Um, he's lost a little bit of fun. Uh, he's had some horrendous injuries and other stuff going along. So at the moment, he just wants to enjoy himself. And I think, you know, there is almost no better place. Grassini's very professional. Um, it's a very family, um, family sort of orientated team. And his brother's there. And, you know, I think at the minute, they're just enjoying themselves. So... All these questions, there are a lot of questions, rightly, wrongly, I don't know. Um, but I think they're going to enjoy themselves and we'll see how far the enjoyment goes. <laughs> it's difficult to predict the season. There's so many variables. And I know as as a data engineer and a crew chief and ones and zeros, <laughs> there's there's no prediction. You're going to take it race by race and develop through you gotta say he's gonna there's so many people say he's gonna nobody's gonna see which way he went it's gonna be this that and the other but you have a I know you have a 180 view on that completely or all you can do is I've always probably my biggest philosophy is improve so whatever round one is round two is better and so on and so on and so on um always been sort of in mind who knows where we start um obviously the higher you start the better chances you have for the future but you don't know where that'll be and as amazing anyone can be um new team new bike going against someone who's just won two world championships on that bike and it has the next back, you know. There's a lot to think about. There is. I agree um, completely. It's not everything straightforward. It's not cotton dry. Not by a long shot. My, my plan with him at the moment is get the first few races, as much experience, and just learn. Because um, I have to understand what he wants to go fast. He has, he has to understand what he needs from the bike to go fast. You know, at the moment, it's, we've no idea. And how you work together, he worked with Santi Hernandez for so many years. And it, so it's a completely different um, synergy for both of you. So that doesn't yeah, happen exactly. overnight. That's not going to happen by the end of Sepang. No, That's no, exactly. going to be three, four, five rounds in. And then it'll start to gel. And then you understand the rider. Rider understands you. And then you go to the next step, is my interpretation. No, no, absolutely. Um, like I said, it's not just one change. It's the whole thing has changed. Mm. Sometimes you have a group, the whole group goes to another manufacturer. It's a bit easier because you understand what the rider wants. Uh, you just have to learn the bike. In his case, he has to learn the bike. He has to learn the team. There's quite a lot. It's so like I said, even with myself last year, it took me time yeah. to understand the bike. So it won't be any different for him. Um, it's going to be a fascinating year. Yeah. that's the. I think that's the bottom line, isn't it? It's going to be a fascinating no, it's, year it's for, for you and for the team. But 
it's fun. That's going to be the best thing about it. And there's going to be a lot more reporters and TV cameras in your in your box than there's been since the uh, Suzuki days. <laughs> I said to him at the presentation after we'd finished, because I was desperate for a gin and tonic, and it was about 11 o'clock and I went, I'll tell you what, I said, there's one thing I can guarantee by the end of this year, I'll be very good at doing interviews. <laughs> yeah, so speaking of gin and tonic, what story does that bring me on to? <laughs> Some of your, be- I'm reliably informed that some of your best decisions are made in that little hour um, recess that you have of an evening <laughs> with a gin and tonic, and you come up with all sorts of things. I'm reliably informed. Um, some work. Some well, time. from the work point of view, <laughs> I have. Well, the days are so long now yeah. that I half seven, eight o'clock, and even half eight when we go for dinner. Uh, I'll stop for a, a good hour and a half. Yeah, might have a beer, a gin and tonic, relax, chill, and then um, go back to the hotel, and then I'll start again. Um, because you've got to remember, you've gone, you've been at the track since seven o'clock in the morning, so you've already done thirteen, fourteen hours. So uh, for two reasons: one, um, I've always had this thing with my side of the garage and team that. We also have a general chit-chat about the day, what you can do, because it's not just my ideas. I also, you know, someone might say, Christ, do you remember when we did that? Athen or whatever. And I go, yes. So there's always things. And sometimes rather than looking at a computer screen for 15 hours nonstop and just looking at lines and going, right, I haven't got a clue, you do get the old spitballing. Exactly. And I know what you want to about a bomb what, May. What's that? What, what's that, Frankie? <laughs> Frankie Cartini, tell me about the Bombay link. We'd just done the double at, uh, I think it was at, no, Mons- I can't remember now. It was a long, long time ago, 10 years ago. No more, 13 years ago. And um, yeah, while I was at the bar ordering a Bombay gin and tonic, I... Uh, randomly thought about changing how the rear end of the bike worked with the link ratio and went back and designed a completely different link. Uh, put it on on the bike and, uh, yeah, a certain rider was using it till recently. I don't know how many years ago, but uh, a mechanic who put it in told me it was still being used about three years ago or something like that, so... And he, d- he didn't do bad. <laughs> on the Yamaha, by any chance? Maybe. <laughs> I can say that. You don't have to. <laughs> um, what else? There's another one as well. I've, I've kind of got a couple of little stories <laughs> just to just to end it off with. Um, Aragon World Superbike. Uh, Scott Kennedy. PJ. <laughs> yes. Hotel Room Jenga. Hotel room? Did they, did they stack your room out? Did they put everything on top of your bed? I can't remember where it was. Yeah, there was something like that. This is all from Tim Seed. I thought you were going to say... This is all from it. Tim Seed, obviously. Oh, right. I thought you were going to say about some speeding fines. What are they? Frankie? That was the same round, I think. Was it? <laughs> it, was the, uh, it was the European Championships final. And uh, I just landed in Barcelona and I had like an hour and a half to get to Aragon. And um, yeah. Is that more of like a two-hour trip? The problem was, yeah, um, <laughs> was when uh, Helen 
And we went back to the workshop and about three weeks later, every day there'd be an envelope going, yep, another one, another one. And I think there was about six or seven. Just to get you there, Fintime. The Just to watch the, yeah, yeah. To watch the Champions League And they final. lost anyway. No, oh. no, it was the European Championship final. But... Oh, the Euros. The Euros, yeah. For the Euros. Yeah, so a good excuse. But... So you've, hopefully you've thought of a higher car story. But let me throw one into you. Valencia test. Stalker and Camier. And that Stalker is um, Leon Camier's friend and yeah, yeah. helper. And just for, for the ladies and gentlemen, not oh. Chris Walker. The S-T-O-R-K-A, that Stalker. Is all I know. It was a hire car with Camier and Stalker at a Valencia test. God, there were so many with them. I can't remember which one that was. You're going to tell me. Trying to pin, no, that's all I've got. That's all Tim told me to pinpoint that. But if you can't remember that one, tell me one from the, from your memory that you, that sticks out for you. I'm sure there was one with them that they had to pick Shaky's car and take it to the airport. But when they picked it up from the hotel, they picked someone else's car and drove the wrong car. That might have been the one. Is that it the one? It wasn't it? even their car. Was it? It wasn't even no, Shaky's it wasn't even car. their car, no. <laughs> I can't remember where that was. What's the one that sticks out for you? For me? Oh, God. And does it involve Colin Wright? <laughs> i tell you what, you could write a flipping, uh, championship on hire cars. It's quite worrying, isn't it? It's why I ask the question um, at the end of every show. And I'm trying to think of the best one. We've had people being shot at in South Africa. Rog with um, Steve Parrish. There's, um, I'm buying your time here, have you noticed? Jack Valentine launching it onto the beach at Daytona. There's been so many. The, the Link Road at Cartagena, always a favourite. I think there was a famous GSE one. They weren't hire cars, they were team cars, but they okay. were, uh, I think it was a race in Italy. Uh, and having to tell Colin Wright that they were both smashed but one went into the back of the other one no. at a roundabout. But either that one or probably even a later round. I can't remember. What are those cars where the doors sort of come out? They slide out, don't they? Was it Renault? Was it Volkswagen? I can't remember. Oh, I know it, yeah. And, um, like a little ice cream van. <laughs> yeah. We, again, a car. It was a team car, but it was driven abroad. And um, I think it was Monza, there's uh, posts as you go through. And um, Daryl hit, I'm sure it was Daryl, he'll kill me if I don't think it was him. So the I'm sure owner. the team owner, yeah, <laughs> Darryl, yeah. Um, was in the back and had the door open. And um, as somebody was driving through these posts, they didn't know that the door was open and it completely wiped the door open. So we had to drive it all the way back from Italy to the UK. No way. With yeah, with the, the polythene. I can't remember what it was. Plastic <laughs> sheets or something. Yeah. Incredible. Took the door completely off. There's so many over the years. It, it, this is tricky. Some people go, "No, I haven't got one." And you look at them and go, "You have." Well, yeah, but I'm not going to say it. <laughs> or they change the name of who was involved, or miraculously they weren't driving. Very often, do we get a higher car? <laughs> well, I wasn't driving, is usually the first caveat of what they come back with. No, no, of course you weren't. No, no. I don't tend to drive anymore. After all those speeding fines, <laughs> I decided it was better not to. Self imposed ban. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. 
Frankie, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much, no, mate. You're welcome. Absolute pleasure to sit with you. Appreciate your time because you're heading off tomorrow. Uh, all the very best. Oh, hang on. Sorry. Quickly. While I remember, I do apologize. I'll do that outro again in a second. Um, we have our patrons. We have um, guys who sign up. They get early access to the show. And they also get a chance to ask um, a couple of questions. Okie doke. There are only a couple of questions. Uh, so start off, Mark Jackson. Mark, thank you very much. Who um, starts off with so many questions. Uh, mainly, if a crew chief's time was divided on a pie chart, what are the biggest slices? Corner entry mapping settings, suspension settings, listening to the rider. How do you? How would you divide up a pie chart in terms of uh, your time? Oh, that's a good question, isn't it? Uh, my honest answer would be each pie chart would be different for each rider. Um, so I'm just going to throw a few names, but um, last year's rider, um, there would be a big percentage on psychology, riding, um, weekend, how he does the weekend, and less suspension, everything else. Leveria, for instance, a uh, very technical rider, knew exactly what he wanted. You'd have a, just purely from a suspension, 80% or, you know, it'd be a completely different thing. Um, yeah. So each one would be different. Flexible. Flexible pie charts. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty because you don't know. So it's not every year is the same because each year that pie chart changes. Uh, you might be working a lot with um, electronics. You might be working a lot with suspension. Um, see, DJ was very, in fact, from 50% of the season to the end, I would say chassis almost down to about 5% because once you'd found it, you'd find it. Yeah. And you'd have 80% on purely electronics. Okay. So engine brake, um, yeah, mainly engine brake actually. <laughs> is that the one? <laughs> that was the key. <laughs> that was the key. It is the hardest thing uh, on any rider to understand. Why? I'm yet to come across one that really, really knows if you go, do you want more or less? The best way. Three maps, what you've got, loads more, loads less, and they'll tell you. Which one gives them more comfort? Whether it's pushing them on into the corner, whether it's retarding it too much. Be because there's so many factors That's my level of that have changed the strategy, how you use the rear brake. I mean, like... Especially for engine braking is so critical because you use it on every corner. It's every corner entry. Is that... It's essentially? Yes, the, the the problem is there's little you've almost got to go for little secrets and hints to tell you if you've got more or less so you could have a rider which looks like it's pushing into the corner and you need loads of engine brake and then you'll look at the rear brake trace and go wait a minute why is he not using the rear brake well he's not using the rear brake because it's the opposite so there's never a right or wrong way um you hope that 
rear brake is fixed and uh, you can sort of understand but not not easy this is fascinating absolutely it's a shame you've got to go tomorrow we could have another couple of hours of this um from uh, from one of our great friends craig low what rule changes would you bring in to motor gp in future <laughs> i know the first one <laughs> two black things uh. yeah exactly <laughs> um I'm not one for changing uh, even as fast as they are um, engines or anything like that. Nope. Nope. It has to, in, in some ways, I'll give you a bit of time to think on that. It's the pinnacle of motorsport. The engine should be as good as they can be. It's pretty much the fastest thing in motorsport, so yeah. why lose... Why dumb it down? Exactly. Um, A lot of people say ban all electronics. Well, these things are unrideable without them. So can't do that. You can't do that. That's rider safety paramount. Um, I'm a big fan of engineering and aero. There is a limit, maybe limiting what you can do um if there's anything i would change is more the whole shot devices for the starts because the bikes accelerate now at stupid speeds i think not 200 and i've seen 1.9 um because of all the stuff you can do um, the bikes are lower, center of gravity is lower, so you can put more power, everything. Not to 100 clicks. 1.9. In 1.9. Yeah, and I've seen a few. Yeah, I think I think Superbikes is, what, 2.6? Yeah. yeah. Um, the problem with that is less reaction time. Um, you know, it's a whole PlayStation now when you procedure before you start um, so I would change that to for, on a safety aspect for the start because there's more and more incidents in turn one and to be fair to the riders it's becoming harder and harder um, with yeah with how fast you're going now yeah I understand you're going into turn one faster than you've ever gone into before and it's 26 riders all looking for the same piece of tarmac yeah and with the changes everyone knows, you've got two, three laps to make your move. So, <laughs> Mate, this has been absolutely fascinating. Now we can end it up. Now I have remembered to do that. <laughs> Frankie, thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate your time fitting us in before you fly out. Best of luck for Sepang for this weekend coming with the new rider and best of luck for the 2024 season. Let's do this again, maybe at the end of the season <laughs> when you get a chance to breathe because there ain't no time in between. No, appreciate Not with it. family and everything else. Cheers, so, buddy. Brilliant. Ladies and gentlemen, Thanks. Frankie Cachetti. A huge thank you to Frankie for squeezing us in before heading off to Sepang. Also to Grassini Racing for allowing us to chat with their man for so long. And finally to Roger Burnett and his staff at the beautiful Laceby Manor Resort. I'm sure you'll agree the insight was fascinating and hopefully we've all come away from the chat a little more knowledgeable than when it started. I know I definitely have. Next week, it's a man we all know well. It's Charlie Hiscott. Charlie tells us about his time in BSB and World Superbike as the Gridwalk Man and his commentary debut commentating for TNT Sports MotoGP coverage. 
We bring Charlie back in front of the camera and find out all about the man himself. And it truly is absolutely fascinating. So until next week, look after yourselves. Bye-bye. This has been an Off-Track Podcast production in association with Graft Ventures.